The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. You try killing my mother, Sarah Connor. You kill my father, Kyle Reese. You will not kill me. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky. With me is William Thrasher. I have a human heart, and it's very strong. We are talking about the fourth film in the Terminator franchise, Terminator Salvation, released in 2009, directed by Mick G. This was produced by Derek Anderson Moritz. Uh, whoops, I clicked on something. and Moritz Borman. page. Uh, yeah, directed by uh, McGee, produced by Derek Anderson, Moritz Borman, Victor Kubiak, and Jeffrey Silver, written by John Brancato and Michael Ferris, based on characters by James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd. This one stars Christian Bale, Anton Yelchin, Sam Worthington, Moon Bloodgood, and Bryce Dallas Howard, and Michael Ironside, and Helen Bonham Carter's, so, you know, pretty good cast. Music by Danny Elfman, cinematography Shan Hurlbutt, edited by Conrad Buff, off of a budget of... Uh, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of $200 million, this made $370 million worldwide. Uh. And for comparison, Terminator 3 had a budget of $187 million, but it made $433 million worldwide. So this one did $130 million less and cost more. Well, I mean, at, le- at least it at made least money. $60 million less. It did make money, but not enough. I mean, this was supposed to kick off a trilogy, much like Terminator uh, Terminator 3 was, and neither happened. Uh, so you get a movie kind of like, um, oh, they've done this so much, but... Uh, a movie where it kind know, of ends in the middle? Kind of ends in the middle. It's like all... It, I think it's like... I call these basal exposition movies. It's like that character from Austin Powers, where, you know, it's a lot of setup of the plot, not much happens. and But then you never get a part two or a part three, and it just kind of... All these setups get no payoffs. It gets very frustrating. Yeah, the first time I'd ever seen this movie was for this recording. Uh, and I found this to be a fascinating mixed bag. Like, there are some things that I think this movie did great, and some things I thought this movie did so, so poorly. Right. It's um, And it came out in 2009. I brought up the box office, and I want you to guess the... Domestic box office. When I say domestic, this means United States and Canada. For 2009, where do you think Terminator Salvation hit? Uh, definitely, oh gosh, it's. I bet it's less than the Hulk movie that came out that year. I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess 12? Uh, I'm not seeing the Hulk. I think that might have been the year before. But oh. this one, um, Terminator Salvation, is number 23 Ooh. with a $125 million gross um, domestically. So what's like above, above it? What's below it? Yeah, yeah. Above it at number 22 is a movie that's part of the franchise that um, I've considered doing. It's uh, Angels and Demons. That's part of the Tom Hanks um, 
Da Vinci Code kind of thing. Oh, right? yeah. It was a prequel with Ewan McGregor. Um, below it at 24, Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs. Um, so by comparison, some other stuff that did worse than it in the United States and Canada were District 9, uh, The Watchmen, um, Disney's last traditionally animated cartoon to date, The Princess and the Frog. But stuff that did better, uh, this was a big year, right? The number one of 2009 was Avatar. You had Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. That's the second one. You had the sixth Harry Potter movie, the second Twilight movie, the first of the Star Trek uh, reboots, and um, even things like Sherlock Holmes and X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, wow. So a whole lot of big ones uh, that year. Even things like uh, Taken Paul and Paul... Bo- Paul Blart Mall Cop did better than poor old Terminator Salvation hmm. in the U.S. and Canada. So, yeah, I, I saw this. I was meant to see this in a theater and uh, wasn't able to. Um, I did get a 7-Eleven collectible cup that looks like one of the posters where it shows a burnt-out cityscape. And then you, you kind of move it. It's a hologram thing. And, uh, and then you see it's the Terminator face, which is kind of a cool bit of imagery. Um, so I, I did see this in video, and I thought this was okay, not not one of the great ones, uh, and it, it's a shame because it has good actors, and I like what they're they're trying to do, but it's not quite there. And this had um, some controversy over its pl- original plot twist leaking online, and then they had to completely change the ending. Really? What was the out of curiosity? What was the original plot twist? We'll get to the one that we really got later. Yeah, um, I mean, so. It was the same in that the character Marcus is a actually a, a Terminator, basically, right? But a good Terminator, so to speak. Uh, but at the original ending, you would have um, John Connor would die, and then they decided to rebuild Marcus's image so that he resembled John Connor and reprogrammed so he would go by John Connor. You know what's funny is watching this movie, I saw that coming. Like, I, like the stuff yeah, that yeah. sets that up is still in the film. Right. And uh, apparently early drafts in the film were more like a buddy cop picture between Marcus and um, Kyle Reese. Hmm. And the twist was supposed to happen later. I mean, the trailers in for this movie ruined the twist that Marcus was a robot. Yet the whole trailer was mm-hmm. the scene where they're confronting Marcus for being a cybernetic organism, and then they cut to some motorcycles, and that was it. Yeah, it's like it. You know, that's like doing an Empire Strikes Back trailer where you reveal the Luke, I am your father, uh, or something. <laughs> it's it's very ridiculous. So with the with this film, you know, they had the urge to um, set it in the future, which which makes sense. I think it's about time. But it does not look like the future in the other movies, where it's always with blue lighting and at night and, you know, all the army people had this particular look. Everything is so desaturated in this film. You know, the other thing is, like, the the firearms they're using are pretty conventional. I kept waiting for them to get those plasma rifles we see in all the other future scenes to the to the point where even up to the end when they go into the Skynet facility, I'm like, oh, they're going to find a crate of plasma rifles and we're going to get a shootout that looks just like one of the combat scenes in any of the other movies. That never happens. This film goes it goes against the established aesthetics of Terminator in some very frustrating ways while cleaving to it in others. Yeah. Um, and originally, I guess some other different things with the script is that John Connor wasn't in it that much. 
they offered the role of Marcus Wright to Christian Bale, and he said, no, I want to be John Connor. <laughs> and so they redid it to make it more John Connor-centric, and so you have a John Connor that kind of like barks orders into a headset for most of the movie, and grumbling, and uh, this movie brought to life the, the very famous internet meme that someone made into a techno piece of music, Christian Bale losing his temper on set, going, why don't you fucking understand? And like screaming. Oh. Do you remember that? That was a yeah, big... Oh yeah, where like a guy crossed a camera during a take or something, and he's like, he's in my light! And he uh-huh. yeah. has his blow up. Mm. Yep. Oh yeah, I do, I do remember that. So... Something that jumped – this is like something that hit both me and my wife who was watching it with me. So we've had three movies of origin story at this point for John Connor, and this movie is still part of his origin story. Yeah, they don't want to let that go, do they? You had um, – because, I mean, you can't really call the first Terminator an origin for John Connor because he's if, – if anything, you know, he's – uh, she gets pregnant, but you don't get to see John Connor except for two seconds in the opening scene. True, but I feel like the narrative thrust of the series makes that part of an extended origin story. So you could call one and two one origin story, three an origin story, and four an origin story. And in the yes. next film, next week's Terminator Genesis, they'll do it yet again. So yeah, it, I don't know what it is. It's, <laughs> it's like with all the Batman movies have a scene where they explain why Batman became Batman. And at some point, that doesn't really matter. It's yeah, just... and I, and I kind of, I kind of wish this movie started with John Connor being a leader. Maybe he doesn't have to lead the whole resistance, but after the previous film, pretty much set up how he gets that job. It just, it seems, it seems a letdown that for like the first half of this movie, John Connor is just like a grunt uh, on the ground. I'm also now very curious how much people know about John Connor's history, because there's a handful of times where people derisively refer to him as the prophesized leader of the resistance. Has he just told everybody that his dad's a time traveler? Like, how does, how does that happen? Like, what, yeah, what do people yeah, know about him movie, and his history? You have the human resistance is just in little pockets all over the world. Which makes sense. And, uh, yeah, and it's not unified. But you don't get much of a sense of John Connor as a character, and and you did in, in some of the other films. Even in last week's Terminator 3, they, they built John Connor up as a guy, you know, hard, a young man, hard in his luck, addicted to drugs and all these things. Painkillers, right. And uh, but yeah, the beginning of this, like so much of it focuses on uh, Marcus Wright, that it is, the opening scene just feels like something out of a bad soap opera. Oh, yeah. Well, beyond, beyond that, the opening scene makes it clear, like, when he shows up again, you know, oh, yeah, e- even if you hadn't seen the trailer, like, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he has to be a cyborg. Uh, be- because, like, the, ho- the whole beginning is that he's a convicted murderer. We don't get too much detail of how he became a convicted murderer, just that he says because of his actions, his brother and two police officers are dead. So we don't know if it was a robbery gone wrong or 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 what. Um and, and strangely enough, the, that crime isn't explored in any way to make him more sympathetic, which did take me by surprise. But he's in prison, and this woman uh, battling cancer, uh, which it's kind of obvious from the from the way she looks and the way she's concealing her her leukemia based baldness. But then it's flat out is stated 
is getting him to sign a waiver for Cyberdyne Systems, donating his body to to some experiment. Um, and in the end, he decides to do that, and we see him uh, we see him executed by means of lethal injection. Which this was something that, and I I will admit, I don't exactly know how the procedure goes, but it drove me crazy that there are these like six syringes attached to a pump. Each syringe activated out of sequence, like they didn't go in a line, which seemed like a weird way for a machine to work. But yeah, I guess it seemed like it would be like all simultaneously, maybe, or well, all simultaneously, or like number one, number two, number mm, three, yeah, number four. In but instead, it's like number four, number two, number one, number six. Um, yeah, and like from from that moment, you know, oh yeah, yeah, he's gonna somehow get made into a Terminator. I wish that scene wasn't there at all. I wish. I wish I was kept guessing what his true nature was. It, it would have been so much more effective to have weird stuff happen around him and you suddenly start to realize, as John Connor realizes, oh, he's a machine. Yeah, it could have been more gradual. And the whatever they did for Helena Bonham Carter's <laughs> head to make her look bald didn't work. Like, her head looked like huge, like a Star Trek alien or something. It, and what's uh, funny is that yeah, I guess they got to they got to conceal all that hair, but it wasn't digitally removed. And even even when uh, I, the opening credits start and I see Helen on bottom Carter, I'm like, oh, good. I hope she has a giant head because that's just sort of her thing now. <laughs> yeah, and um, they keep her hair pretty clamped back, which you haven't seen her with hair like that in quite some time. I mean, even in um, what is it, Ocean's. Ocean's Twelve. Ten? No, the the one with the women. The, they did the remake. I, the oh, sequel. I think that was Ten. Was it maybe Ocean's Ten or whatever? Like she has crazy hair in that, and of course, oh, Harry yeah. Potter is Bellatrix, um, which we talked about on the show years ago with the Harry Potter movies. But yeah, so with all this stuff, it's interesting to um, see. You have this this start, and then it that's in two thousand three, and then it goes into twenty eighteen, and you have John Connor uh, leading some troops to attack a Skynet base. And um, I, I do not like the way this movie is shot. Everything is desaturated where it looks bland, almost to the point of it looking like near like black and white or something. It looks a bit like the, the Gears of War um, video games on the Xbox 360. And uh, also, like, the, the camera just uh, follows people around. And, and just the way things are shot, it, it looks more... It, it looks like other movies at the time, but on the other hand, it doesn't... Um, you don't really get that epic scope. You know, it's not quite the quick-cutting, jiggly cameras of Michael Bay, but it's more in that direction than sort of the stately, austere uh, framing of especially James Cameron. You know what su- it suddenly occurred to me? We see more Terminators in the flashback scene in Terminator 2 than we do in this movie. Yeah, well, and part of that, they, they talk about a model, I think the T6, eh, yeah, they, they, oh, the yeah, T six hundred. Yeah, the T six hundred. You do not see a Terminator Terminator until like the last twenty minutes, which, which is when I think this movie actually gets okay and feels sort of like <laughs> a Terminator movie. Instead, this this is a pretty toyetic in some ways, right? You see things like the, the Moto Terminators, the motorcycle Terminators. You do see the HK um, forty seven. Those big. Um, oh, the movie, tanks. Is it the tanks? I think like the oh, tanks. Oh, no, the hunter see, killers. The, the hunter the killers. The the, yeah. the planes. Yeah. So I mean, some of the things look kind of familiar, but they're not quite there because we're not quite at that point in the future. <laughs> yeah, but they but they attack this 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 uh, 
uh, facility. It's got it's got all these like you know transmitters, satellite towers, so it's some sort of communication hub. Um, and uh, you know they they find a whole bunch of human prisoners that are being experimented on uh, in uh, in this bunker underneath the whole facility. And I don't think they ever rescue those people. Now that I think about it, uh, but so it, tur- either. it goes sideways. Yeah, it, it, tur- it turns it turns into a, a massacre, and in the end, John Connor uh, is the only survivor. A lot of the humans get taken away on a transport, uh, so John Connor has to commandeer one of his. In a very grim scene, he jumps into a helicopter and tells the pilot, "Follow the transport," uh, but the pilot's dead, so he just has to chuck him out of the vehicle. Um, but it's also. Uh, I you know it just it just occurred to me everyone in this movie operates on the same grizzled level I can't I don't even remember if it's John Connor that's attacked by the Terminator torso or if it's Marcus who's attacked by the Terminator torso I think it's John Connor but you're right there's something about like all the performances are kind of flat and mumbled and um Christian Bale I usually think is good but here he's just really bland looking i think uh and and uh what do you think about sam worthington who plays marcus who is frankly a bigger character in the film you better known as the lead in avatar i gen- generally i like him like um a- a- anton yelchin is the his performance is the one that really leaves the impression on me uh but as far as the performance for the the character of marcus i mean it 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 works I think it would work better if there was some ambiguity as to whether or not he was a machine. Because <laughs> sometimes he is stiff. Sometimes he 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 has a lot of emotion. Um, the strangely enough, the part that I really liked is when he's teaching. Because uh, it turns out Anton Yelchin is Kyle Reese. The the part that I like the best, as far as his performance goes, is when he he's teaching Kyle Reese like basic combat skills. Yeah, those scenes are always fun, and there's a bit of a warmth uh, between them. And, and Kyle Reese is—I think Anton Yelchin was like 20 or something when he did this film. He was pretty young, but he, he has like a nice vulnerability. And sometimes he does. I think the way he like cocks one of the guns is the same way Kyle Reese did in the first film. And, and like all these Terminator sequels, feel like they have to do. They have lines from the other movies, and, and one scene, Christian Bale leaves the base and says, "I'll be back." It's like you got these very lame callbacks that aren't necessary yeah i guess it's it they're supposed to be sort of like arc words that unite these movies thematically but they end up coming off as catchphrases and it's when they feel like a catchphrase that it doesn't work and one actor i wish was in this movie a lot more is michael ironside is general ashdown oh he's a treat he yeah he is in full like pissed off general kind of full metal jacket mode. But he, he doesn't really have like face to face scenes with John Connor. It's all him talking into like a a radio screaming at him to at not following orders. You know, it's strangely enough, like it's there is so so little really happens on the submarine until the submarine gets blown up. So little happens on the submarine that, that Ironside is using as his base of, of operations. I kind of wish it was just a voice over the radio. I wish it was just a voice only cameo. Yeah. It, uh, I don't know what it is. I mean, it, and the way his scenes are done, he's just, it reminded me a bit of like those mission briefing scenes in the command and conquer games. It was like, Oh, oh you gotta yeah. take, you gotta take the base on the beachhead soldier. And like, it, 
<laughs> it's just so perfunctory of a of a role. I just don't really know um, what they're thinking. But but after John Connor leaves the side of that battle, after possibly or maybe not fighting a Terminator torso, uh, Marcus just like crawls out of a pit covered in goo uh, and doesn't know what the hell's going on. And so, you know, cleans the goo off in the rain, steals steals clothing from the well, I guess salvages clothing from the corpse of a resistance soldier and just kind of goes off wandering Um and he wanders into uh, he wanders into a town where uh, where Anton Yelchin, Yelchin's Kyle Reese uh, is hanging out protecting uh, protecting this uh, young girl. And I don't know if you you noticed this. So we already talked earlier about how the movie kind of looks and feels like a video game, but this whole sequence when they first meet each other, it's the nobody comes to Ravensburg level of Half Life Two. What is that a reference to? Oh, well, um, Half Life Two. You just said okay. Yeah, the the Ravensburg level. There's there's this there's this okay. whole, there's this whole segment in Half Life Two called the, this in the town of Ravensburg, which nobody goes to because these like zombies have kind of taken it over. And the way you play that level is you very rarely have any weapons, but there's traps hidden all over the level where you drop heavy things on the zombies. Uh, and that's what happens here. The town's riddled with heavy things that you drop on the Terminators that are trying to sneak through the town. Yeah, I can see that. And it's also, you just have this exposition and you have Kyle and a child. And meanwhile, the movie takes its sweet time to get Marcus to meet John Connor. But John Connor has figured out that um, Skynet has a kill list and a mon the names on it or Kyle Reese, which Connor knows is his father. But he doesn't know where he is, and uh, they do they do set up this thing throughout the film heavily of members of the resistance, and I guess people that aren't members of the resistance. And the radio, you can tune into a frequency and hear the John Connor show, where he just gives <laughs> inspiring speeches, I guess, and gives you tips on fighting the different Terminators. Oh, and how to disrupt their transmitter by stabbing them in the back of the neck. Yeah, you know, with the knife, um, which is an interesting note, but. It sort of other, comes back later. It it does. And yet you um, have a weird scene that feels like something out of Transformers where John Connor and the Rebels are in the base and they've captured this. It looks like sort of a like a robot snake thing. Oh, yeah, the Hydrobot. A Hydrobot. And um, like that doesn't look like a Terminator design at all. Well, I mean, it's it's just like a cool, like, robot snaky thing, which, as near as I can tell, only exists to attack humans who enter water. Yeah, and we do get them in a scene later, which is okay, but you, um, but this sets up something that they figured out a technology that uh, you can use to sort of shut down the Terminator in mass. Yeah, that like the, the frequency, the digital frequency that Skynet uses to communicate with the Terminators there's like a carrier wave and there's a signal that there's like a shutdown signal. You can broadcast to the same frequency as the carrier wave. And that just flat out shuts them down. And they do it kind of backwards. Don't they? Don't you think you would have the scene of them fighting this thing? And then afterwards they analyze it. Instead, you see them it, analyzing it first. And then much, much later, there's an action scene against it, these uh, creatures. It could have been a kind of fun scene where we see them capture, capture something. Um, but yeah, they just kind of go. They just kind of go straight to it, uh, with with everybody struggling to hold this robot with the giant snapping blade teeth down. 
Oh, actually, I do have a question for you. So we know Skynet has a kill list, and John Connor uh, is high on the list, and so is Cal Reese. So I, I put, uh, put this to you. How, how do you think Skynet found out about Kyle Reese? How did Skynet find out about Kyle Reese? I, I think they, knowing how convoluted the series is, they sent a Terminator back from the future to inform Skynet of Kyle Reese. Or either I that, guess. or maybe they, they they could have audited, like, had little spy cameras figure out who is in the resistance and who isn't. Well, but the whole the whole reason he's high up on the kill list, because remember, he's like a teenager in this movie. The only reason he's high up on the kill list is because he is, he is John Connor's father, but only by virtue of time travel. But we don't even get a sense that anyone even has access to time travel in this movie. So it kind of it kind of rankles me that Skynet knows this. Nevertheless, they do. Not true. And, uh, and you have Marcus and Kyle and this kid that doesn't speak named Star um, go around, and they eventually what they, they meet up with like a, a bigger group of rebels. Well, they, they're not rebels. They're just scavengers trying to survive. Uh, and yeah. They they were trying to like trade for some fuel. The the scavengers are going to kill them. But then it turns out there's this older woman with the scavengers, who you know she sees a hungry child and she decides that they should be they should be fed. And there's this kind of nice this nice scene where like she brings up these like raw vegetables that look like they were just carried out of the ground and feeds them to the girl. Which I thought I thought that was nice. But this scene gets interrupted in a big way. <laughs> it does. You see through the the ceiling of this hideout. All of a sudden, the humans are snatched up in large quantities. By giant robot hands. Yes. And um, it, it's weird because it comes out of nowhere. They don't set it up, and it just... It, it, it comes off as a cartoony kind of effect where they're all getting snatched. Well, especially when you see how large and stompy this giant mech is, how the hell did it sneak up on this position so that it could grab people? That too, but you have... Um, you know, Kyle Reese gets captured, and I, I think that's a big mistake because uh, we mentioned Anton Yelchin is charismatic as Kyle Reese, and yet for most of this movie, he's just locked up, waiting to be rescued. Yeah, he he does he does have his active and his passive moments, but in in a that that's another thing that I think could help focus the movie is if maybe it was more of Kyle Reese's story i mean he he is the underdog he's he hasn't had training like john connor he hasn't lived through a lot like john connor he's the character who's in over their head uh who's being chased and doesn't know why uh there i there's a real story to be told there but that's not the story we get hmm but this also leads to a big old, big old action set piece because the giant Terminator mech can fire robot motorcycles from its knees. And that leads to a big old car chase. Yes, and they have these Moto Terminators. And I like there, there's a, one character who says to another, oh, no, Moto Terminators, which is like such a forced line. It's like something you'd see in G.I. Joe or something like you have to say the name of what's attacking you. To well, sell a toy of the product, but I mean, why, why not just say like it's a, it's a T one hundred and seven? Like, just give it a designation yeah, yeah, that sounds kind of cool, right? That'd be a cooler name. Actually, no, it should it should be a T zero one zero because then there's like a wheel on either side. Oh, there you go. It of looks the number, like a motorcycle from the profile. 
And, like, I admit, like, they look cool as hell. And I, I love, like, when the, the guns pop out of the side. But at the same time, huge design flaw. Because if they fall over, they have no way of righting themselves. Yeah, that is strange. Or if they fell over, they could maybe show them, like, something pivots them back up. I don't know. But, yeah, it's... Well, but it doesn't, because they fall over and they're done. <laughs> and nothing happens, right? So that's... And later, yeah, they actually set up that trap where they, they put a, a trip line across the road, right? And and, and, and it works it. completely. It almost makes me wonder why they haven't trip-wired all the roads. Oh, yeah, you could just have it all over, of a certain height just to yeah, knock off could, those... The motorcycles. Because if you know if you know where you've trapped the road, you could just kind of go off the road, like as you go back on right before the tripwire. But um, yeah. Although I this so this chase sequence I really did like. I wasn't so thrilled with the giant mech fight scene, but this scene where they're in the tow truck uh, being chased by the motorcycle terminators was really fun and really took advantage of their post apocalyptic environment. It is odd, though, with the post-apocalyptic environment. In this movie, so much you see it during the day. And in the James Cameron films, it was all at night and had all the lights and I think looked a lot cooler looking. You know, I don't, you know now that I think about it, do you think that the fact that it was all dark in the, in the first two films, do you think that was more of a sort of budget thing? Because dark tends to conceal limitations in, in effects and in sets. Or do you think that's also supposed to imply like a nuclear winter, since we know that this whole thing began with a nuclear strike? Maybe both. I mean, you see, they still use that today a lot in movies to keep things in the dark, to kind of make the effects blend in better. Um, Godzilla always does that a lot whenever they do the American remakes of that (laughs) and so forth. So, uh, but it, oh. but there's something about you have like the gray of the Terminator contrasted against like the the dark blue backgrounds and then the red eyes like there's something with that color combination that works out well. Okay, so speak, speaking of color combinations, there is there's something that that really kind of rankled me um, throughout this movie. So there there's a a bit so. Uh, Marcus is wearing a, a coat that he took from a Resistance soldier. And of course, he doesn't know what's going on. As far as he knows, his memories ended in the in the early two thousands. Um, and Kyle Reese is explaining that you know that that's a resistance outfit. He's not fit to wear those colors. Um, so what what is what? And now the resistance they're all wearing salvaged clothes, but they're indicated there in the resistance is a red armband. That's kind of fucked up. Yeah. Like I don't know. that that the idea of a red armband indicating your side, it's the indicator for the wrong goddamn side. Uh, if you know anything about twentieth century history, I'm really perplexed as to why that's the symbol for the human resistance in this movie. I don't know. I think I think that's a good point. Also, um... and visually, it doesn't even stand out. It gets it's no. always such a dirty red. It gets completely lost in the uniform. One small detail in the film is uh, you have some scenes of John Connor listening to Sarah Connor, and they did get Linda Hamilton back to record that voiceover. Oh, that's cool. Although what she's saying is nothing really of consequence. (laughs) But that they got the real person I thought was neat. And there's a bit of a continuity in that John Connor does have the wife, Kate, although in this film it's played by a different actress, Bryce Dallas Howard. 
Oh yeah, she she is pregnant, uh, confirming the presence of the children that were mentioned in the previous film. Yeah, but she doesn't um, have a whole lot to do, which is kind of too bad. I think that would have been interesting. But the main, the female character that does have a little bit to do is uh, Blair Williams, played by Moon Bloodgood. She was a fun character. Like I, I like, like she had stuff to do. Uh, so this movie's PG-13. Um, in the unrated cut, they have a scene where she takes her top off, and it's the most forced scene, excuse for nudity, I think I've ever seen. It's, what is it, like one of those, oh, look, a pool of water. I need to get clean. Like, how how forced is it? <laughs> Almost. Like, it's in the rain, and it's just her and Marcus. Um, I think it's supposed to be a little bit later in the film when her and Marcus are escaping and doing their own thing, but it's it's in the rain, and from a distance, she takes her shirt off, and um, it's just kind of wordless, hmm. and Marcus is trying not to stare, but not really, but then in, in, some, uh, in some interview, Mick G said that he was mad he had to cut that scene because he felt that her breast represented the softness of humanity. <laughs> now, I, I can see how that could work as symbolism, However, I don't think that could work in this movie. No, and I think, you know, we get a, a scene earlier where uh, I, I don't think those characters really have a romance or whatever, but that you get the um, where she's cold and she says, oh, like, I need your, your body for warmth or something. I thought it was a nice sort of tender moment. And uh, they, they could have done more with her. Like you had Sarah Connor in the other films and, and or some female characters, you know, doing or even Kate in Terminator 3 to some extent taking action well when, when, she, when she's on screen she she's great uh and you know she's she's a fighter pilot for the resistance she tries to she you know she tries at the end of the chase sequence she tries to rescue people from the transport she gets she gets shot down uh, her parachute gets tangled in some old power in an old uh power line tower uh and marcus uh, and marcus helps her get down although i will i will say one technical detail that really bothered me is so so she's in her parachute harness and she's the parachute's tangled in the tower so she's got this not combat knife and is cutting through the straps on her harness to get down you don't need to do that that harness has a special release thing on the front so that you don't have to waste time cutting out you just twist the release and the harness comes undone right um and yet, so many movies do that, don't they? With them cutting the thing, whether it's Rambo, uh, First Blood Part Two, or and I realize it looks it looks badass, but you're you're not. It doesn't work. You don't need to do that. And you know what? You know what? I think why I, I that detail hits me. It just occurred to me. Uh, I had a science teacher who used to be in the Air Force, and he was explaining how paratrooping worked. Uh, and he actually went on this little thing about in movies when, like, they try to cut through part of the parachute, especially, like, when it's the cord. Like, if you cut one of those cords, you know what it does? It doesn't sever. It unravels into ten new cords. <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about all the, like, all the things that movies get wrong <laughs> about parachutes. I'm thankful for that. Uh, I, bet you it's, I bet you it's quite more than anyone would ever think to begin with. Uh, and so eventually <laughs> yeah. in this film, Marcus does go with um with Williams with, with the Williams uh and and meets John Connor, right? They go to the base and run into John Connor and that's where we get the scene uh, Marcus is injured 
And so as they're working on him, you know, he he wakes up and he sees. Well, they get the, injured because he because he gets hit by a magnetic landmine. <laughs> yes, which would kill most people. You think that would give him some sort of a clue? And and which is there to kill Terminators, but it does nothing to him. It just blows off some of his skin. Yeah. Um, again, strange. But well, the- well, this this is when him him being part machine kind of is weird because like they 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 have him on a stretcher they're like huh they see like exposed metal in his leg like does he have a prosthetic limb and then they clearly have noticed other cybernetics in him so they need to knock him out how do they knock him out they hit him they hit him with a rifle butt so you could just knock him unconscious yeah you think him being part. Uh- you know, part robot, you would they be able to have to do more to knock him out? Well, his skull is metal. It's his his skull is made out of helmet, right? And his chest, and it the effect doesn't look that good either. Like you're trying to you do this reveal that, as we said, was spoiled in this trailer. Of he he wakes up, he looks down, and he's this kind of dangling, and all his robot parts are exposed, and he's screaming, and it's. As an interesting scene, but like the something about the effects didn't quite work for me there. Well, I think it's it's like for the it's I think it all comes down to the face because whenever we see his face with the exposed machine parts, they always for whatever reason one of the things that's that's visually so compelling in the previous Terminator films is that when the Terminator takes damage, there really is like a hard line between what's flesh and what's metal. Because the flesh is just a coating. Mm-hmm. But with Marcus, every time we see his face with the exposed cybernetics, it's as if they're trying to do a transition between the flesh and the metal, and that just does not work. Yeah, I think I think you, uh, you put it pretty well. And there. this is also where we get some dialogue because you know we we've already like had a, a reference where uh, Moon Blo- where where um, Williams when she's leaning against Marcus for warmth she says oh I can feel your heart beating you have a very strong heart and that line comes back again with like oh yes his his brain is his brain is organic part of his spinal column is organic and he still has his heart which is very strong uh. it's that's such bad dialogue and also I do have to wonder. Like, aside from plot purposes, why does he still have an organic heart? Like, shouldn't there be, like, a blood pump that never gets tired? Or something? Yeah, well, yeah, that'd be simpler, wouldn't it, than having the human heart pump? I mean, why well, do you need blood whatsoever? I don't know. Like, why? Well, for just for the brain, I guess. But that's another thing, is that, is that they keep talking, they talk about his heart several times, and they even, multiple characters even say they can see it. We never see it. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't know what they're looking at. <laughs> We're looking at the same exposed chest cavity they are. And that would and that would be a neat visual image if we could see something organic squirming in there. Right, kind of like how they did in the um, RoboCop uh, remake. Yeah, and, and but they're trying to figure out what he is. Is he a machine that doesn't know he's a machine? Which, again, that's a compelling idea. A Terminator that doesn't know it's a Terminator. Um, but uh, Moonbloodgood decides she's going to help him escape, thinks that he's a good person. Um, and that leads to a, another cha- another escape scene, another uh, shootout. There's... I, from this point, I kind of wish it was the uh, I kind of wish it was the Marcus and William show because they've got really good chemistry on screen, and I love seeing them work together to get Marcus out of the base. Um, but you know, she ends up she ends up getting shot, covering his escape, 
you know, he he rides a motorcycle over a whole lot of barbed wire. Uh, you know, gets to the other side. John Connor f- follows him in a helicopter. The helicopter crashes. There's a fight with those Aquabots, uh, and then we get some more direct interaction between Connors and Marcus as you know, Mar- Marcus says, you know, we, we know Kyle Reese has been captured by the Terminator. He's in this, this one of the central Skynet facilities. I can get you in. We can rescue him. And I get, I guess that kind of works. And like, I'm not something more like, I, well, well this, and this is where, this is where we, well, should, should we talk about, about, Marcus, like the the big reveal with Marcus now, or should we wait until we get to that that scene? Let's talk about it now. Okay, so so the big so the big reveal is yeah, Mar- you know Marcus does have a Terminator body. Skynet specifically, Skynet had to get creative and specifically made Marcus to infiltrate the Resistance so they could get John Connor and and Kyle Reese. The problem I have with this is that he has had multiple opportunities to kill both of them. But for some reason, it's really important to Skynet that they be captured and in this facility first. And I just don't buy that. I mean, it, it's even stated he has a machine cortex in his brain. I see no reason why a kill switch can't be flipped and he doesn't just kill them. He is alone with both of them for extended periods of time. Why do, Why doesn't he just kill them? Why Why do we have to build to this action set piece? Why did Skynet decide that this action set piece was so important to its plan? And why, I mean, you... They don't do a great job of setting up of why the Terminators are capturing humans. And that's such like a big plot point of... if you If they had built that up and set that up better earlier in the film you would have more of a compelling reason like, oh, he has to, oh, what they're doing to the people is so awful, they have to be saved. Instead, yeah, well, it's like I'm, they're just kind of captured and they're put on trains and it's like, okay, like, where are they going? What's happening? Yeah, and like, I mean, we know we know from the first films that humans, that the humans that weren't outright killed were taken to work camps, you know, gathering resources for Skynet. But yeah, we don't get any sense that that's what's happening here. They're just, they're just route, rounded up in a corral, just waiting <laughs> And that you get a lot of that exposition revealing um, Marcus's past is just him sitting in front of a computer screen, like with yeah, up. with Helen and Bottom Monum Carter's face, a hologram of it just talking to him. Yeah, like it, it, that's just about as bad as in um, what is it, Batman versus Superman? Uh, whatever. Oh, that when, movie. when they check emails. <laughs> Yes, where they check emails and it has clips of all the other members of the Justice League and their logos and, and their logos, which is even worse. It's like, like I get you could get information from a computer and that's fine, but you can do something to make it more visually interesting. Or then, uh, then it, it just that really felt like a cutscene from a video game to me. Oh yeah, is where and it's also computer it's- is yammering at you for an hour. And, and it saves on the special effect budget because when Marcus goes back in the facility and syncs with that central computer um, to deactivate the defenses so John Connor can sneak in, like, Skynet sucks him into this tube, and when he comes out of it, he's completely healed. All of his flesh parts are back, so they don't have to do the digital effect of him with metal exposed. <laughs> and like, So is that part of the plan, is to keep him pristine? 
He has to be squeaky clean to uh, make it into for their plan to work, whatever the plan is. Yeah. Like they they do such a poor job setting stuff up, and you try to do these big plot twists, but when they give you so little information to go on, you just don't really care that much. I think this other thing is I don't I don't like a scatty uh, a scat a chatty Skynet. I think it works better when Skynet is this distant monolithic machine intelligence. The fact that it can have a human face and hold a conversation. I don't. I don't really like. It makes it. It's straight enough. It makes it less science fictional. I kind of wish they would show like the brain of Skynet as like this huge blocky computer that takes over an entire building, kind of like you know that would be. That would be kind of cool, especially if it was like made up from different generations of computer hardware. That'd be since it was made from different computer systems linking up. This big, yeah, faceless. Wordless behemoth would be almost like a monolith or something. Could be yeah, neat, but 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 in the end, uh, you know, uh, Connor's releases uh, Kyle and Connor, uh, Kyle and Connor, uh, Connor and Marcus release a bunch of humans from cells. Um, they release uh, they release Kyle Reese. There's a there's a chase. There's a we we get we get some insubordination where because um, this is also when we find out. This is also during that expedition exposition dump that's also when we find out that that kill signal is completely fake skynet engineered that into a couple of terminators so that the humans would find it try to exploit it and then would be essentially led into a trap um because uh ironside orders a full-on strike on this very facility and and this and the 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 John Connor's people decide, well, no, we're not going to do this strike. There are people in there and they, they disobey the orders, but then eventually they do go there to fight the facility so that they can rescue, so that they can rescue, uh, rescue the prisoners. Um, I, I like, you know, I like the idea that that whole, that whole shutdown code is a bit too inconvenient and it's in fact fake and part of a trap, but I kind of, I, I, I kind of wish I would rather have seen the high command sort of defeated by their own hubris of trying to do trying to use this this stratagem. But instead, we get a final showdown in a T-800 factory, which I think works. I mean, think of the end of the original Terminator and even in Terminator 2, right? You're in those industrial settings. This is more well, like that. Fu- this this is more compelling than the like garage where a lot of the end of Terminator Three is. Well, that's what's fascinating is that this final fi- this fight scene in the T eight hundred factory, uh, where they do where they fight where they fight Arnold Schwarzenegger, a somewhat successfully digitally de aged Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> um, in in a cameo. Um, it it has all these echoes to the climax of Terminator One and Terminator Two. Um, they, you know, they, they dump molten metal on the Terminator. They hit him with liquid nitrogen. Um, it's, it's, it's really neat in that sense. Like I, I liked those, those links to the previous films. No, I think the sequence, once they get in the factory is, um, my favorite stuff in the film. It starts really feeling like a Terminator movie. Because... And they remembered that the Terminator power sources are, are unstable when breached, so they take a bunch of the batteries, wire them with Primacord, and that's how they destroy the facility. Right, um, which is something set up in Terminator 3, sure. So you, you just have some good Terminator action. Uh, the The effect of the you know younger 1980s like Schwarzenegger thing fighting them is, is okay, 
Um, and, and they do this again in next week's film, Terminator Genesis, funnily enough. Well, I find yeah. that like when when he's just standing still or when like he's walking, it looks great. Whenever yeah. the the head or face does anything, the effect unravels. But right. I do, but I do, I was completely surprised by that. I didn't think we were going to see Schwarzenegger anywhere in this film. Yeah, because um, Schwarzenegger couldn't actively be in the movie because he was governor of California still at this time. So they went in and they took photos of they took like a zillion photos of him, maybe did a full body scan. Uh, to get this stuff in there. And for the body double, they found a guy that had nearly Schwarzenegger's exact measurements when he was that age doing the original film. I um, thought that might be a body double. Yeah, but it, the the body like looks really close to what the Schwarzenegger thing... It, it's oh, all yeah. the head. Uh, as you mentioned, like as soon as it moves, the, the air kind of comes out of the tires. But it, it's convincing enough, and they don't spend a whole lot of time with you staring at that face smartly, like it gets to the, the endo, the exos, whatever, endoskeleton underneath <laughs> pretty quickly, um, which makes yeah. sense. But, you know, in the, in the end, our, our, our heroes escape on a helicopter. Um, John Connor uses the, the girl hands, star hands, John Connor, the remote. He uses it to destroy the whole facility goes up in a very satisfying explosion. However, as they're escaping, John Connor does get stabbed through the heart by a piece of rebar from the Terminator. So, of course, his heart. So we then cut to him after having open open air surgery in the desert. Like, his heart's just too damaged. I don't know if he can make it. And, of course, Marcus says, my heart is strong. Give it to him. This uh, is my chance at redemption. It's just uh, so, it's so telegraphed. But, yeah, um, instead of having them switch places, they just transplant Marcus's still human heart into John Connor. Which I guess it's completely compatible. They don't screen for compatibility, um, but yeah, that's that's like he saved plenty of people so far. But no, this is uh, Marcus's moment of redemption, um, you know. And then uh, we end with a bit of voiceover from John Connor talking about if you can hear this, you're in the resistance. There is no fate, but what we make. Well, that and the fate caused by the time loop because you still have to send Kyle Reese back in time after giving him a photo of your mom. Well, but that, that's a callback to a quote from the first film from Kyle Reese. True, but there's they're still so beholden to that time loop that it gets harder and harder to take seriously every time it's invoked. Right. Um, so, yeah, Terminator Salvation. I, this movie just is really flat for me. I have to give this one a sequel. No, it it, it isn't terrible. It's okay. Um, I like it when they get to the factory. I like uh, would have liked more Anton Yelchin as Kyle Reese. Um, but it just kind of lurches and fits and starts. And watching this movie almost makes me want to go back to Terminator 3 and give that a slightly, give that a sequel yes ranking, but I, I will hold to my sequel no ranking on Terminator 3 as well. Um, it, this one, it, the idea was, had this got a sequel, I think we could have got some cool things and there was some concept artwork that would have, uh, had some of it take place in London for some reason. So, I, I do kind of wonder what the overall story arc would have been for this, don't you? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to give it a, a sequel as as well. I really wanted to like this film, but despite some really good performances, some really good good actors and actresses in this film, this movie squanders every good idea or good premise it has. And some of the dialogue is just so telegraphed the whole, you have a strong heart. 
that's that's so tacked tacked on. It just the, in the end, I found this to be a very very unsatisfying movie. Uh, I agree. Unsatisfying is a good word, which takes us to pitch a sequel. Uh, <laughs> I have have something in mind, so I think you know you you have done a few of these movies at this point where the um you're trying to link back up to the future part of the other film and i say you just need to kind of forget that i think you would do uh mine would be sort of a quirky low budget comedy and it would be kind of like office space meets the birth of skynet <laughs> where it's just the, these people in the office uh with some slapstick comedy going about their days and they happen to be working, helping. The end of the film would be Skynet going like live, and all these people would be screwed. <laughs> You're almost describing Better Off Ted. That could be a serious finale for Better Off Ted. <laughs> so I, I would call this uh, Terminator Skynet Origins. Well, I feel like a better title might be Terminator uh, Human Resources. Oh, that could be good, yeah. Right. Well, uh, my my pitch of sequel, uh, I'm going to stay in this future setting. I think I also want something a bit more comical, but mine's going to be a bit more of a character study because it's all about John Connor recovering from heart surgery because you, you can't just get up uh, and run around uh, immediately after a heart transplant. Um so for most of the movie, John Connor just is in bed recovering and is getting and is trying to run the resistance from a hospital bed, hearing about all these amazing adventures all the other characters are having. But we never see him. Uh, we almost never leave the the uh, bunker where he's recovering uh, from surgery. Uh, however, he does have someone to keep him company while he's recovering. Everyone else is too busy fighting Skynet, which is really panicking because now Skynet is well and truly losing the war. Uh, and that's Marcus's head. Marcus's head is still alive uh, after having the heart removed and just kind of chats with him, keeps him company, uh, is always asking uh, Connors to like explain what's happened in the past 20 years of human history. Um you know, Connors is also, you know, Connors is also desperately trying to find out where a time machine is because Kyle Reese is growing older. And in fact, that'll be a gag is every time Kyle Reese shows up, he's played by a different actor and gets progressively older throughout the film. So when the disembodied head of Marcus is talking to John Connor, is it a bit like uh, you have some sort of jokes, kind of like a reanimator? I think I, th- I think I would. I mean, we we would have you know an I, I ain't got no body sort of thing. Uh, you know, you know. Hey, let's give John Connors a hand, cause I can't. And he looks down to where his neck ends. I see. And then it plays like a trombone stain, <laughs> or like a, or a rim shot. And you can even play the rim shot on the head. You hit Marcus's head, and it rings like a cymbal. Yep. Yeah. Neat. Yeah, I'm going to call this uh, Terminator R&R. Okay, there you go. So, um, <laughs> Thrasher, what you're watching? So, uh, I'm, I'm back on the superhero thing again. Uh, I saw uh, Shazam a few days ago. Oh, uh, how was that? I found it to be delightful. It's It's the first of the... I, well, I guess with the it's the first of the recent live action 
uh, DC Comics movies that truly embraces its source material. Okay, but it's 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 a very it's a very human story. I I love the performances, and the climax is amazing. And if you if you know the Captain Marvel family, the original Captain Marvel, not the current Captain Marvel, there's a whole. And I guess I can say it's <laughs> they do avoid saying the name Captain Marvel in this movie in some pretty creative ways. And for that, I applaud them to take advantage of that difficulty in the script. Um, but th- there's like I, I half susp- if you know if you know how classic Captain Marvel works and you know that part of the DC universe and Fawcett comics, there's a decent chance you'll see the climax coming it is so worth it. This has one of the best endings, the best climaxes of any superhero film I've seen in the past 10 years. Uh, and is the villain someone from the comics, or is it a new character? Oh, no, no. It, it is uh, Dr. Zavanna, who was one of the villains uh, from uh, from the comics. Oh, now, if you're wondering why is it Dr. Zavanna and not either of Captain Marvel's true uh, nemesi, don't worry both of those you you will you will not be disappointed those nemesis aren't totally absent any tie-ins to the other recent DC uh, universe movies or is it like a one-off well that that's that's the funny thing uh I, I this this doesn't give away too much but early in the movie uh when Billy Batson moves into his foster home uh the 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 kid that he shares a bedroom with has all this like superhero memorabilia and when it's first introduced, you think, oh, oh, it's like toys and action figures. But no, it's not. It's like actual stuff from crime scenes where Batman and Superman have fought criminals um, that this kid collects. And he even has newspaper clippings about like Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman. Um, there, there's there's some bigger connections to the other movies later on. But, but I don't want to give it away, but it is very fun. All right, so pretty subtle work. No, there. no, it is not subtle at all. <laughs> not subtle, I guess not. But it's just it's so tonally different, and that and that's if I, if I can say one thing about this movie that that I thought was amazing. It is a transitional movie because when the movie begins, it has the exact same tone and aesthetic as all the grim, dark recent DC movies. But by the end of the movie. It has this bright, joyful, celebratory, aspirational aesthetic that is so refreshingly different from those grim, dark movies. I heard they wanted to get Henry Cavill in as a cameo for Superman, but it didn't quite work out. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think by the time they were ready to film that, he was done with he was done with Superman. I, be, I believe it's been confirmed. Uh, that he is no longer going to be appearing as Superman, which is a shame. I think he was well cast. He was just poorly utilized. And Ben Affleck has confirmed he's not going to be Batman, and the actor that played the Flash confirmed he's not going to be the Flash. <laughs> so that uh, well. Cyborg and Aquaman? And I think Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman, of course, yeah, because Wonder Woman is going to yeah. be a sequel called like Wonder yeah. Woman 1984 or something. Yeah, Gal, G- Gal Gadot is back uh, in that. I, I, I'm... I am interesting to I'm interested to see what they're going to do with that movie in that particular setting. Yeah, and it has Chris Pine's character as alive, which I don't understand that either. But is is he a, well? So I we don't know. They've just seen a, pictures. 
because it could be a flashback, although I have heard a rumor that the movie is essentially going to sort of exist in a bubble. Like it's not, it's not a sequel in the sense that it continues the narrative. It's just, well, let's just take everything that worked in the first movie, but put it in a different time and place. Right. And I did hear some quotes from sort of the, the corporate sort of the, the higher executives up at Warner brothers saying that, Oh, they're going to do a lot of one-off films and not really have them related to each other too much because Justice League really underperformed. Um, and, you know, ironically, Aquaman made more money than even Batman versus Superman. Made over a billion dollars. Who would have thought that when that was the butt of the joke of um, that HBO show, that the name I can't think of. Oh, Entourage. Entourage, thank you. Yeah, uh, so actually, I saw Aquaman uh, 2 recently. Uh, it's not a good movie, but it's tremendously fun. I wasn't as thrilled with it i just tonally i don't know like sometimes it's silly sometimes i wish it would have been more silly i i could not get over all the scenes of patrick wilson as the bad guy stretching his arms open and screaming into the <laughs> like there's a lot of that um i was kind you know of surprised i love, I love it that was, his mask yeah. could change expression when he did <laughs> yes um but yeah no it i i like that it was definitely uh different and um, they could have used more of those guitar riffs whenever Aquaman was on scene. <laughs> also, John Reese davis voiced a, lobster, a Lobster Man, which I did not realize until afterwards. It's the part he was born to play. Yeah. Um, speaking of superheroes, I saw a superhero thing. This was a direct-to-video animated film, the last thing Adam West ever did, Batman versus Two-Face. Oh, yeah, with William Shatner as Two-Face. Yeah, in fact, both uh, this one and the one before it, Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders, you can watch streaming in the United States on Amazon Prime. Um, they have those on there, and uh, I was watching the second one. I think I like the first one, Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders, a bit more, because it had a plot where Batman had ran across Batnip and kind of became evil. But this one, Batman versus Two-Face, you have William Shatner as Two-Face, and Two-Face it has had surgery and has been rehabilitated so he just looks like harvey dent but then things start happening and the two-faced side starts coming back out and there's a there's like a a gas that turns people into two-face so you have a scene where batman fights a two-faced version of robin um, oh yeah that that's and uh having the original actors i think uh, goes a long way but i liked how much more campy the the prior animated film return of the caped crusaders was like in that one, you had a scene where Batman and Robin were tied up to a, a huge TV dinner. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of puns, as you might imagine. This one, it's it, it's not quite as uh, over the top. And I think that was sort of a mistake. I mean, you still have you have puns and, and, and everything. And uh, I, I think towards the end, Batman drops a bomb to cure the populace of Gotham. That is like the, the bat anti-two-face gas <laughs> uh, cure bomb or something. It's it's right next to the shark repellent. Well, it is, and there's a close up of the bomb with the name on it. Like it does have the thing from the TV show where signs have stupid names on them, which I think has is sort of a Twitter account of its own. And uh, William Shatner is Harvey Dent. He's good. He's smug, but his two faced voice uh, could be a little bit more. I don't know. He just makes it slightly gravelly, but it doesn't sound threatening. 
Well, it's one of those things where I, it makes me wish that William Shatner had played Two-Face on Batman in the 60s. I believe Harlan Ellison I feel like wrote, could have worked. Harlan Ellison, I, I think, wrote a script for the Batman 60s TV show about Two-Face. And yes, they, they adapted it. it into a graphic novel, Did The they? Two-Way Crimes of Two-Face. I've read oh, it. It's really fun. Is it? Yeah, I'll have to track that down. But yeah, part of the reason they didn't want to do it is because they thought Two-Face would be too gruesome for the little kids on TV. Um, oh, that's a shame. The, so what did you think yeah. of it having both uh, both Julie Newmar and Lee Merriweather? Are they both in this one? Let me look at the... Yeah, I believe so, because there's even no. a joke where, because one of them is Catwoman and one of them is like the assistant to the district attorney. And there's even a scene where they switch clothes. So they both appear as Catwoman in the movie. <laughs> I think you might be talking about the other movie. I don't think that's in this one. Oh, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. I, either way, I, I still like. I appreciated that. I appreciated that detail. There, there is a great. Um, speaking of sort of cameos, there's a great scene where Batman and Robin are all tied up, and uh, Two Face is going to is trying to invites a whole bunch of the supervillains to come over, and they sit. It's almost like a game show set, and it's like whoever bids the most money can see who Batman really is, can oh, see yeah. him unmasked. And they, they bring, I mean, you have like the Joker and the Penguin and all that, but they also have like Egghead, the Clock King, Shame. Like nice. uh, earlier in the film, Batman fights King Tut. Like they really go into uh, the, the weeds a bit with this, especially having a good <laughs> running joke where when King Tut ha- gets bopped on the head, he returns to his kind professor persona. And so, um, and so Officer O'Hara keeps on conking him on the head to make him King Tut to confess to his crimes. And then King Tut keeps hitting himself in the head to go back to the human persona so he can't confess. (laughs) So it's, it's a lot of fun, but I preferred the Batman Return of the Cape Crusaders one to uh, this Batman versus Two-Face. Adam West, he... I mean, he did this like right before he died, I think, and uh, I don't know. He's okay as Batman, but I am just shocked with Burt Ward how he can still do the Robin voice and how close it still sounds. It, it's it is amazing, yeah, because you you can you can hear the years in Adam West's voice. You don't hear it in Burt Ward, right? You can hear the years. You can hear the timing. Um, Julie Newmar as Catwoman isn't great e- either. I mean, I like they cast someone from the 1960s show, but it's like well, you can hear her years as well. Yeah, you can. It, uh, to do the sex kitten thing at that age, um, unless you're Mae West or something, perhaps is not the most advisable <laughs> thing. But I, I appreciate the intent of what they're doing. Well, camp, camp helps. Like camp, yes. Since camp is already out of date, it ages really well. And among some of the characters I, that I don't believe are in the original series, you have um, Hugo Strange is in here. Oh yeah, and you have oh, even uh, Harley Quinn. So I've got to I've got to ask you something. So if if you were to cast Mae West in the 1960s Batman series, who would you have her play? And let's think, let's broaden it. You could have her play anyone from the DC universe, but still in still in the Batman show. Hmm. I think I would try and and class it up and have Mae West play. Um, Bruce Wayne's mother in a flashback. (laughs) 
Oh, honey, let's take a shortcut down Crime Alley. Oh, let's, let's go to the movies. Oh, so, it's so who plays uh, Mr. Wayne? <laughs> Mr. Wayne would be played by, um, I'm assuming this is in the 60s, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, would be played by Batman co-creator Bob Kane in a showboaty, hammy role. <laughs> Okay, let's go! We're going to the movies! <laughs> we're going to the movies, and afterwards, then we're going to the boobies. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I was thinking, like, 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 Cary Grant, you know. Oh, let's go down Crime Alley. We've had such a wonderful evening at the cinema. Oh, I think, no, it'd be James Mason. And now, now, Bruce, I think we're going to deal with that mugger over there. Very, very good. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, overall, Batman versus Two-Face is okay. If if you have to choose between one or the other, I would go for the first one, Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders, because that, that feature has a wonderful scene where Batman goes crazy, and they start giving him lines from the other Batman films, which is very strange to hear Adam West say things like, you want to get nuts, let's get nuts. <laughs> you want to get nuts. Uh, I guess, if I, and just uh, to answer my own question, I, I would have uh, Mae West, just because it's too good of a pun, Mae West uh, would play Calendar Girl. Oh, sure. And part and part of the joke is she's going to kidnap Mae West and take her place as part of an evil scheme to steal some diamonds. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what also and makes she'll have sense? Three women, she'll have three hench women named April, uh, May, and June. Would uh, her assistant May be called May Flowers, and April is April Showers? No, that would be for a weather-based villain. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So, um, let's do the sequel scene. Why don't you explain what this is, and what character do you want to play? Oh, I, I feel like they both have the same voice. I guess, I guess I'll do Marcus. Okay, so I'll be John this- Connor. This is the scene. Uh, so this is after this is after the uh, Marcus uh, saves John from the Hydrobots. So John is up on the shore of the 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 river. Uh, Marcus is in the river. And I gotta say, something bothered me about that scene is that John had ample opportunity to get out of the water filled with aquatic robots. He never did for some reason. Um, but this is them trying to sort of come to terms with the fact that they need to do a rescue mission to save Kyle. Yep. Okay, so let's uh, get started. So after Marcus helps John defeat the Hydrobots, John Connor turns and points the gun at him. They know what you are, even if you don't. Enough! That gun ain't gonna stop shit. Nobody shot you in the heart, and I see that thing beating a mile a minute. Kyle Reese, he's in Skynet. You do that, he's dead. I can get you in. How? Marcus steps forward into the light. His face is half-mangled, revealing a metal skull underneath. Look at me! That's why I don't trust you. I'm the only hope you have. I need to find who did this to me. So do you. Why does John Connor need to find out who did that to Marcus Wright? Why? Uh, I... Again, I think that's a vestigial line (laughs) from the early draft of the script where they were going to switch places. I had done some, uh, a little bit of research on this, and I guess on set, uh, a writer that helped a bit with the script was um, 
Jonathan Nolan, Christopher Nolan's brother, who who wrote huh. some of the Dark Knight movies that Christian Bale is in. And Christian Bale lamented that because of a writer's strike, they weren't able to get the script into shape like they wanted to. Oh, yeah. And also, uh, it's buried, I think, in Wikipedia or some interview or something that um, Christian Bale turned down the role three times before taking it. And he took hmm. it almost to spite people to say, well, I'll do it even if people don't think I should, which perhaps isn't the best impulse to take a role. Well, that, that's what people don't understand about Christian Bale. He has been cursed. If you ask him three times to be in a movie, he has to say yes on the third time. Right. That explains why he's uh, he's voicing the lead character in the gritty uh, Michael Bay, My Little Pony reboot coming. <laughs> That, that would be weird to see a CGI pony movie. <laughs> oh, you haven't seen that YouTube trailer? Someone did a fake, like, Michael Bay, My Little Pony. No, I'll have to check that out. Oh, it, it's pretty funny. You have, like, scenes of generals going, like, release the ponies. <laughs> All right, so um, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, follow the show uh, at SequelCast2. Uh, go to Facebook uh, if you have an account there and look up SequelCast2. Like the page. Leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. Um, every little review helps with the downloads and so forth. And uh, if you have a question for the show, you can send in me an email at SequelCast at gmail.com. Also, our theme song is performed by Mark with the C. Check out more of his music on MarkWithTheSea.com. That's right. Um, so for sequel cast two, this is or next week we'll be talking about Terminator Genesis, the so far last film in the series. Later this year, uh, in uh, September, I think twenty nineteen, there will be a sixth Terminator film, Terminator Dark Fate. That that might be the least time that's passed between when we've done a series and when we've had to do a catch up episode. I think so. And come to think of it, the only Terminator movie I've seen in the theater was Terminator Three. Hmm. All the other ones I've seen on video. Um, so for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. If you can hear this, you're in the resistance. Don't you fucking understand? Who the fucking can you fucking hear? Don't you fucking understand?